Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. My guest this week is Mark Elias. Mark is an election law attorney who has been at the forefront of protecting voting rights and stopping political interference in elections. Mark is also the founder of Democracy Docket, a website and newsletter that highlights voter suppression efforts and his actions to stop them from taking effect. Bombshell development in North Carolina tonight. There will be a new election. State officials ordering that election in a congressional race amid sweeping allegations of tampered ballot. Developing now, a judge in Wisconsin is rejecting another lawsuit filed by President Trump's attorneys. Lawsuit in Michigan now. The Trump campaign is losing a lawsuit to seek to halt vote counting in Michigan. That's according to an oral order from a state court judge. President Trump loses another legal battle in Pennsylvania, but his attorneys are vowing to take their fight to the U.S. Supreme Court. Out front tonight, the breaking news this hour. Supreme Court moments ago, speaking and flat out rejecting President Trump's last-ditch effort to steal the election from Joe Biden. I'm Mark Elias, and I am fighting for voting rights for everybody. Sorry, not sorry. Hi, Mark. So we're going to get into specifics of some of your work, but I'd like to start off just by hearing a bit about you. I realized this morning when I woke up for this interview is I'm so familiar with your work, but I don't really know a lot about you personally. So can you tell me and my listeners how you came to practice election law? You know, I grew up in New York and uh, I was once asked in a in a setting, you know, what made you a Democrat? And different people were saying, well, I'm a Democrat because of this or that. And we got to me and I said, um, I'm a Democrat because I was born a Democrat. I was born into a New Deal household and grew up believing that we needed to have a more just and inclusive society that allowed everyone to participate and everyone to achieve. And so, you know, I went to law school, not sure what I was going to do, came out of law school in the early 1990s. And it was right at the time that Newt Gingrich had taken over control of the House. And he introduced a toxicity into politics that had not existed before. And that was the formative period that I became a lawyer. And over time, I wound up doing more and more work for Democratic elected officials um, and then eventually really settled in more recently on voting rights and redistricting. It's interesting that you mentioned uh, Newt Gingrich, because I feel like everyone that does this work has that one person that sort of turned the tide for them. And what year was Newt? in or what years? So Newt Gingrich was in uh, Congress from the mid 80s onward, but he he became um, speaker in 1994 following the, the midterm elections. And if you remember, he, he what he understood that no other politician before him had is that he could flip the House of Representatives and gain power through just sheer attacking of his opponents. 
you know, everyone thinks that he was that the contract with America was this positive vision. First of all, most of the contract with America was nonsense. They were going to sell off a house office building. I mean, it was it was kooky stuff. But what really brought Newt Gingrich to power was his relentless attacks on Democrats as corrupt and out of touch. Mm. Well, it stuck, didn't it? Because they're still using that messaging. Yeah. So I want to know, feeling all that, feeling the way you did, being awakened to that time and that era, being born into a democratic family, what is it about election law that appeals to you? So at its most fundamental level, the foundation of everything in our country is is based on free and fair elections. You know, whether your issue is uh, climate or social justice or economic equality, all of these things rest on the foundation that we have a liberal democratic system, a system where people can put out ideas and that we have elections and that the elections uh, are held freely and fairly and have consequences. So I've always been attracted to the idea that, that I could be involved in a part of the law that is not about helping company A make money versus company B, but rather about solidifying and shoring up those underpinnings of democracy. Mm. Well, I mean, you've been able to build a really impressive career fighting for just that basic principle that everyone should be able to vote. Can you walk us through the general landscape of where voting rights stand today and even how you've seen it change as you've been practicing? Yeah. So, you know, much of the fights of the of the late 90s and early 2000s were oddly enough, really about campaign finance and really about how we finance elections and what does money in politics mean. There was always voter suppression and we always lived with the horrible curse and legacy of racism in our society and in our electoral system. But if you look at things from 1965 until 2009, you basically see directionally voting is getting easier. You see the adoption, obviously, of the Voting Rights Act, and then you see the adoption of vote by mail in more states, early voting in more states, no excuse absentee in more states. And I don't want to sugarcoat it or, or, or make it seem better than it was, but by and large, the fights that were going on around voting rights were still within a bounds of both sides agreeing that voting should be easier. One side was advocating ID, the other side was opposing ID, but but we were both kind of all moving at least directionally the same place. In, in 2009, it all changed because Barack Obama got elected and the Republican Party faced a choice. And that choice was, do we try to compete with the emerging electorate? Right, George Bush, I had, was general counsel to John Kerry in 2004. George Bush did quite well among Latino voters, for example. And the question was, do you try to fight for a share of this growing electorate or do you try to suppress it? And if you remember, there was an autopsy that the Republican Party did after 2012 that actually asked this question. Where should we as the Republican Party be on these issues? And the party came to the conclusion that it needed to moderate its positions. Today, the pool of eligible voters in the U.S. is far broader and more inclusive than ever before in U.S. history. But of course, it's not perfect. There are still active efforts to suppress some groups from voting, 
and only about 60% of those who can vote do. And then Donald Trump came. And Donald Trump represented the culmination of years and years of this internal struggle within the Republican Party. And it settled on becoming a party that aimed itself at excluding as many voters as possible and disenfranchising voters, particularly those who are Black, Brown, and young. You mentioned voter suppression. I'm wondering if you know what are some of the most suppressive laws and then what is being done to change them? See, this is the thing, Alyssa, that's so crazy about where we are right now. You know, if you had asked me this question 10 years ago or even five years ago, I would have said, you know, that ID laws are suppressive. The manner by which we screen and treat vote by mail ballots can be suppressive, particularly for young voters and voters of color. But what Donald Trump did is he didn't just say the quiet part out loud. He screamed it. He wanted to just disenfranchise thousands and now after the election, millions of voters. It's totally different than what you saw before. But, you know, in March of last year, I wrote a a piece which wound up being very influential called The Four Pillars to Protect Voting Rights with Vote by Mail. And these were the four things I wrote it in the middle of March, right at the beginning of the pandemic. And these were the four things that I thought we needed to do to make sure that we did not see voter suppression in the vote by mail arena. One was making sure that ballots postmarked by election day count, even if they're received afterwards. One was making sure that the state pays for postage. One was making sure that signature match laws are not applied in a way that unnecessarily disenfranchise voters and don't give voters an opportunity to cure. And then the last one was making sure that third-party groups like Native American communities can collect and return sealed mail ballots, because oftentimes they don't have on-reservation mail service that's reliable. And that wound up being the battle lines of so much of the litigation uh, in 2020. I mean, are there any states getting this right? Yeah. Actually, California has really good laws for voters. They pay for postage. They allow a really good, convenient way for people who want to vote by mail to do so. You know, there are public drop boxes spread throughout the communities. They give an opportunity for voters whose ballots are deemed not to be uh, not not to comply with all the rules. They give them an opportunity to be to- told that and an opportunity to fix it. They allow third-party ballot collection. So I, I think California has a lot to offer the country, particularly if you don't want to adopt an Oregon or Washington or Colorado-style entire vote-by-mail system. So, I mean, what are the most or at least some of the most common voter suppression tactics that legislators and campaigns try to exploit? I think that the ones that I worried about the most in 2020 had to do with restrictions on vote by mail, whether it was requiring witnesses, requiring notaries, Uh, only allowing voters over the age of 65 to vote by mail without an excuse, not allowing COVID to be an excuse. 
here are some statistics from 2018. We don't yet have the data from 2020. I think it's going to be quite a bit better. But in 2018, in Florida, you may remember there was a very close election for Senate and governor. Bill Nelson lost by one-tenth of a percent. Andrew Gillum lost by four-tenths of a percent. In that election, if you were 18 to 21 and voted by mail, you ha- your ballot was rejected 5.4% of the time. The State Board of Elections says nearly 98% of all ballots cast have either been accepted or cured. But I focused on the ones that weren't. Among black voters, nearly 2,000 of them had their ballots rejected. That's more than 5% of all the ones cast by those voters. If you were over the age of 65, it was 0.6%. So is the difference between a 1 in 20 chance of having your ballot not count versus a 1 in 200? If you were white, it was your rejection rate was less than 1%. If you were black or Latino, it was over 2%. So there was a real inequity in this system that we saw Republicans in 2020 trying to exploit by passing these barriers to voting, for example, making people have witness requirements. Well, if you live alone, how are you supposed to meet that? Yeah, the witness requirement thing, I've never understood that. I mean, it it almost makes more sense because there are certain states that have to certify, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like actually have someone that notaries and a notary, yeah, and that to me makes more sense than just having, <laughs> you know, a, a, a like a like a signature from a witness because that could literally be it could be anybody, right? And how do we know that there's not you know shenanigans going on there? It just never made sense to me. It's hard, you know, because as voters, I don't think it's important that we stress so much on the difficulty in voting because that suppresses the vote as well. But I do think it's important to at least discuss what voters should be doing or on the lookout for and things that they can do when they suspect that voter suppression is happening. Is it something that an individual voter can fight? It totally is. And I think we're going to see again when we get the 2020 data, I think we're going to see a lot of successes. For example, remember we all talked about how the naked ballot problem in Pennsylvania, where I think it was a 6% rejection rate in the primary. I can tell you, you know, I don't have hard numbers, but I can tell you having been involved in the post-election now uh, in Pennsylvania the rejection rate for naked ballots is going to be quite small. I think that that was a situation in which voters got educated by Mm. hearing about the problems and then taking the extra step to make sure that they met that. I think that a lot of the places where you saw fights about whether ballots had to be received by a certain date, I think that also wound up educating a lot of voters. And I think voters wound up then being extra careful to get their ballots in earlier. And do we know how people get that information? I mean, I'd I'd like to think everyone's on social media. Of course, that's not true. So is it local news stations? Is it local newspapers? Like how much of it happens on a local level, that education process? Well, so I don't want to totally discount social media. Um, and, I, and and obviously, it's an all of the above, right? They hear about it on the news. They, they, they read about it in the newspaper. Um, they read about it on social media. But go back to the statistics that I gave you about Florida. If, in fact, the rejection rates in Florida in 2018 were disproportionately Black, Brown, and young, how did those communities hear about this? Well, actually, it's from people like you. Right. It, you know, I, I made a point of saying to a number of different groups of influencers and, and particularly 
artists, uh, whether they be musical or actors, that that you all have an enormous voice into the homes and computers of people. And, you know, I wouldn't undersell how important that was to seeing the rejection rates fall if, as I suspect we do, see them fall to be less uneven. Interesting. When we looked at the polling during the primary and what we were seeing on social media seems so drastically different than the polling we were getting from outside of social media. There seemed to be such a huge gap in the way we were getting information and who we were backing. And it it just seemed like we were in our echo chambers on social media, and yet that was not the real world. So maybe it is different for, you know, educating and empowering people free of personal taste or inclination. Well, I also think it depends on on where the problem is. I mean, with with polling, what you're trying to get is a statistical sample of re- that is representative of all Americans. If I tell you that the problem, though, among voter suppression is targeted at young voters and voters of color, a better solution to fix that problem would be more targeted in, in those communities. So I don't want to speak to, you know, exactly how social media, who it, who it's targeted to or whose accounts do what, but I do think that a lot of the education that people get are from sources they trust. And uh, for a lot of the voters who are most susceptible to suppression, like CNN is not going to be their thing. Right. I want to talk about North Carolina. You successfully won a case there that ended up with throwing out a fraudulent election. Is that right? That is true. That is true. The first time, I think, in our country's history that a state reordered a new congressional election based on allegations of fraud. And it was a terrible story about a Republican party at the local level and a Republican candidate and campaign who were really victimizing really poor voters who were susceptible to having their votes stolen in some instances and defrauded in others. What's really perverse about it is that the the scheme involved a Republican candidate for House essentially hiring his campaign, hiring a contractor who was, in my view, stealing the votes of mostly Black voters to fill in their ballots in some instances and other instances to influence them to vote for this Republican who very unlikely they supported. Um, And um, for the Republican Party to then turn around in 2020 and cite that as justification for their voter suppression was really too much. I bet. And this episode, I should say, is airing right around Joe Biden's inauguration. But we are speaking and recording this at the very end of November. And Trump has spent the past month since his defeat, which I can't believe it's only been a month. It feels so (laughs) much longer. But since his defeat, he's been claiming voter fraud. And in North Carolina, in the, the case that you won, there was serious voter fraud. Did he have a point? Is voter fraud common? No, voter fraud is almost non-existent. Almost non-existent. And just to be clear, the North Carolina case didn't involve voter fraud. The voters didn't commit fraud. The campaign committed fraud. Mm. It was a Republican campaign that was preying on the poverty in in the community and on trusted figures in the community. 
But, you know, there is almost no voter fraud in the United States. And what the president has done in claiming massive voter fraud and wild conspiracies is shameful. And the willingness of the Republican Party to turn a blind eye and to humor him is even more shameful. I mean, it it just I mean, if you just go back to parenting, right, of course, it's easier to give the child the lollipop and to to sort of placate them and be like, oh, OK. But this is so I can't even wrap my head around it because not only is the Republican Party uh, just allowing it to happen, but they're allowing it to happen in the middle of a pandemic when millions of American families are struggling, when this should be the last thing on any of their minds. And to allow Trump to entertain this instead of governing, it's infuriating. It's infuriating to me. And I don't know why things still surprise me about, you know, the GOP. I'm still surprised that they've allowed this to go this far. And I don't know how we get back from this, especially because, I mean, we're we're seeing Trump lose over and over again. He's lost dozens of cases. Has he won any? So as of today, which I realize this will air later, so he by then will have lost more. But as of today, he and his allies have won one case and lost 39. The one case they won involved a few dozen ballots, had to do with whether voters in a place in Pennsylvania got six days to cure their ballot or nine days to cure their ballot. And he's continuing to take money from the American people to fund all of this. Yep. In a time of such hardship. Requests from the Trump campaign for more money to fund legal expenses in their lawsuits to overturn election results. But those donations might not actually be used to fund lawsuits. I'm speechless. I can't even. And and, and to think that his own judicial appointees, right, refused to side with him and and wrote some scathing opinions against his articles. I mean, it seemed clear even to those of us without a legal background that he had no legal arguments. So what was he trying to accomplish here? So I think that one thing you can say about Donald Trump and his entire public life around politics has been that he has been a destructive force towards democracy. Democracy largely rests on norms. It doesn't rest on laws. It rests on norms. There are certain things we expect people to do. We expect prominent business people not to make up lies about the sitting president's birth certificate. But Donald Trump got away with doing that. And the media let him get away with it as if it was somehow, and it became normalized. And then when he ran for president in 2016 and he lied and held rallies in which he led cheers of lock her up, that is a norm that you don't do. And the media allowed it to happen and it became normalized. And we saw that over and over again when he was president, that he would he would undermine the norms of what we expect in a democracy, what we expect from our leadership. And that's what he's done in the post-election. He has acted in a way that is incredibly damaging to our democracy because of the the damage it does to the expectations of how presidents and presidential candidates behave. What will the next presidential candidate do when they lose? 
I mean, the precedent is is there for them to do whatever they have to do, not only if they lose, just throughout the entire presidency and to not be held to account. And you're right. It is a lot. The responsibility falls on the media for sure. And it seemed like they didn't start to get serious about calling him on his bullshit until the election was close enough that they were still able to report on something. And it did such a disservice to not only our democracy, but to American people. And it's probably going to turn out to be one of the more disappointing things about this entire, you know, six years from when he started to run in hindsight. would have happened if he had succeeded in stealing the election? Well, I'd say two things. First, which is something you pointed out, and I'm glad you did. Um, His behavior is taking place in the middle of a pandemic that is both a health crisis and an economic crisis. And millions of Americans right now are not getting the relief they need, either, either on the health front or on the economic front, because... President Trump is consumed with his own narcissism. And that's a tragedy. I mean, that's a tragedy of that's judged in lives lost and in futures for children. So what would have happened if he had prevailed in, in stealing the election? Um, it would have damaged those people even more. The second is what it would have done to our democracy. And frankly, if you hold democratic elections and one candidate wins, more votes than the other and isn't seated, it is in and of itself a democratic problem, right? We had that problem in 2000. We had that problem in 2016 where you had a candidate win more votes and not be seated. That is a that is a structural flaw that we had to account for. But of course, Al Gore and Hillary Clinton helped heal that through the democratic norms, the norms of concession and of healing. If Donald Trump had, in addition to losing by six plus million votes, had then been able to steal the election, then there are no more democratic norms. At that point, you have under you have completely unraveled democracy because you have the candidate who got more votes, the candidate who won more states, electoral college votes, still not taking office. At that point, you simply don't have anything left to even cling to as a democracy. And then we have people like, you know, I want to talk for a minute, but really briefly about Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell. Why were they allowed to continue to have clearly ridiculous cases heard? I mean, are there no penalties for willfully wasting the court's time and resources? So, look, filing lawsuits is easy. Winning them is hard. So, you know, so, you know, people keep asking me, you know, why were they allowed to keep filing lawsuits? And the answer is because you file a lawsuit, you pay a filing fee and you're you file the lawsuit. It doesn't mean that that lawsuit's going to be meritorious. I do think that there is a question at the at the end of this about the Republican legal establishment. You know, the Republican legal establishment stood by voter suppression and participated in it 
up through the election. Some very prominent law firms were involved in trying to litigate to prevent the right to vote. Well, we also learned today that the lawyer on that call with President Trump, Cleta Mitchell, is resigning from her law firm following her participation on that call. What has the broader fallout been? Right. Uh, Mitchell is someone with a big roster of Republican clients, but someone who hasn't been so closely associated with President Trump and these efforts. Um, So the fact that this person who is um, not maybe a household name, but is very well known in Republican circles in Washington is out of her current firm reflects sort of where the momentum is going on this. A number of them, if not all of them, backed away slowly after the election. But with the exception of Ben Ginsburg, who gets a lot of credit in my book for standing up and saying, this is wrong. You know, mostly what we have from from the Republican legal establishment is silence as they watch the destruction that's being done by Donald Trump and by the lawyers you mentioned who are bringing frivolous lawsuits. And then we also have to be aware that it seems like, I don't know, half of the country truly believes the nonsense I mean, I can't even imagine what will the lasting consequences be of of Trump and and Giuliani's baseless attacks on our electoral system. I don't think we know. People of Arizona. And it will stand in recess until the call of the chair. We'll pause. Protesters are in the building. Thank you. Lawmakers were abruptly rushed to safety Wednesday after supporters of President Donald Trump breached the U.S. Capitol, a joint session of Congress to formally certify President-elect Joe Biden's election victory unexpectedly recessed as chaos ensued. Capitol security stood at the main door of the House chamber with guns drawn as Trump supporters tried to enter, while others occupied the Senate chamber, one shouting that Trump had won the election. Once you lose the norms of how people expect politicians to act, you lose a lot. Yeah, I'm just so concerned about, you know, half the country believing all of this. This is such an incredible thing that you do. Tell us about Democracy Docket. So I started Democracy Docket earlier this year because um, it, was clear to me that there was all of this confusion about what was going on around voting. And there needed to be a place for people to go to find good, accurate information about what the voting rules were, what the voting landscape looked like, you know, what it meant if there was a study that showed XYZ. So I set Democracy.gov up to do that. And then at the same time, we were litigating all of these voting rights cases. And I was getting a lot of questions from reporters and others, where can I go to get copies of the the pleadings, the the court decisions and everything for the case you're involved in? So I set up democracydocket.com, acts as a clearinghouse for good, uh, reliable information and opinion about voting and voting rights and for next year redistricting, and also a place to find these, these pleadings. It's also taken on more of a life with related uh, C3 and C4 projects around funding, you know, necessary voting rights litigation. So I've been quite pleasantly surprised at the level of interest, and it's something I'm hoping to continue in the future. Well, especially in a time with so much disinformation, I feel like it was such an important thing for you to provide the public with an inside view into what's happening um, with these court cases, but also what's happening concerning their their voting rights. So 
thank you for that. And it's it's one of those things where you go, well, how did this not exist before, <laughs> right? How did we get to, to this point without this? And I check it at least a couple of times a week and, and spend some time just reading in the incredible work that that you've done. And I just appreciate you so much. So thank you. And thank you for being on the podcast. It's it's a great honor for me. And I think my last question is through everything that you've fought for throughout this time, how do you stay positive? I mean, what what gives you hope? So I stay positive because I have no other choice. You know, one of the things I wrote on on Democracy Docket, actually, was in the last week of October. It was right after Ruth Bader Ginsburg's passing. And um, I think it was the day that uh, Justice Barrett was confirmed. And everywhere around me, there were people saying, you know, we're going to lose the presidency in the Supreme Court. We're going to lose every voting right. And I wrote this piece in which I basically just said, look, I don't have the luxury of thinking that way. Like, I don't have the luxury of saying, oh, well, all's lost. So what keeps me positive is that I have to keep believing that the system will hold. I have to believe that at the end of the day, democracy will persevere. So that's what keeps me positive. Well, you give me hope, Mark. Thank you for being with us. Well, thank you. I search your Twitter feed for the for the count every day of how many lawsuits the Trump campaign lost. And, and just, just first, congratulations on, on the legal victories. But what was it like to fight against cases that were not rooted in fact? So thank you, first of all, for, for having me um, to set the record. Um, Trump has and his allies have now lost 59 um, lawsuits. Uh, oh, I'm court. sorry. <laughs> that's, that's, that's all right. I thought they wouldn't make it till six to 60, but they actually then filed a lawsuit in New Mexico uh, after the vote certification. Um, so I suspect that'll be their 60th loss. Um, but it's been a surreal experience because, you know, this election was was close, but it wasn't that close. Right. I mean, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris won seven million more votes and over 300 electoral votes. And even when you look at the states at the margins, they weren't that close. I mean, we weren't talking about elections in any of these states decided by hundreds or even a few thousand votes. We're talking about uh, elections that were decided by tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of votes. Law is the foundation of our democracy. And yes, trolls, a democratic republic is still a democracy. So when people especially people who create the law, attempt to pervert it to make it difficult or impossible for huge groups of people to have their say in how we are governed. It tarnishes the foundation of America. We witnessed that in this last election. We saw Trump and his minions try to burn the nation down on their way out, and his cheerleaders in Congress kept handing him the matches. But the more important thing, something which gets a little lost in the shuffle, is that the law won. Time and time again, judges, even those appointed by Trump, refused to allow this attack on America to succeed. He lost dozens of cases and basically won none. Over and over again, the law and those entrusted to carry it out held firm. It was heartening and inspiring. Our law is stronger than Trump. 
but only if we have champions like Mark Elias standing up and fighting against those who would take away the power of the voters in a desperate attempt to cling to their own. In the end, the people will always win. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our associate producer is Ben Jackson. Editing and engineering by Natasha Jacobs. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. That's my boy. Please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like the show, please rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry.